Welcome to People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose is a podcast of inspiring people whose stories help you see things differently, live with intentionality, elevate the way you participate in the world, and take the necessary leaps in your life to seek and find your passions. Come with us and develop the courage to wholeheartedly pursue your purpose and unleash your truest potential. Once you really drop into your purpose, it's just everywhere, you know. <laughs> you become like a magnet, you know, <laughs> for all these like purpose-driven people. And you just move around the world and they just come to you wherever you go. You just like attract people like that, you know. Getting to interview Carolyn Seitler was a fantastic experience. And our interview was so refreshing and adventurous that I know that you're going to get a lot of value out of this. So... Thank you so much for listening, and I'm really excited for you to get to know this multifaceted, purposeful individual that you know is following the same thread of purpose in so many different ways. I know that it's going to impact you, especially if you're a person that knows that you want to do entrepreneurship, that you want to be guided by your purpose, but you don't necessarily have one single venture to commit to. I know you're going to get a lot of that, a lot of out of this episode. So thank you so much for listening to today's Person of Purpose. Carolyn Seitler. Hello, Carolyn Seitler, and welcome to the People of Purpose podcast. Wonderful to have you here today. Welcome. I know you're visiting us from the Mediterranean, and I'm here in Kansas City. Where are you today? I'm on a, a tiny island called Gozo, which is literally in the middle of the Mediterranean, and it belongs to the Maltese archipelago of islands. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I know uh, you were recommended to us through Alexander Keenan, which was a former guest. And we've talked a few different times, which is, is rare for me. Normally, I'm meeting a guest, you know, 10 minutes before we start interviewing. Um, but I, I really enjoyed getting to learn your story. You have quite a unique journey from you know studying dance therapy to uh, moving to guitar and starting a women's empowerment movement and conference to forming culture for purpose-driven entrepreneurs. And it's just so many things going on there that I'm just so curious. It's like, what what is your purpose? Um, actually, I, I realized in the notes that we did before that you said you don't even have a proper purpose statement, even though I can tell the way you design and architect your life is very purposeful and or at least conscious of, of your sense of purpose. So what is purpose for you and, and what is your purpose at, you know, at this moment in your life? Well, purpose for me is what drives me, you know, what drives me to do everything and what, um, why I'm here, basically. Um, and so I have this, um, this trust that everything is divinely designed to be perfect. So I think, you know, I'm going to have all the skills and everything I need to fulfill my purpose, because otherwise, it wouldn't make sense, you know. So, um, but yeah, my what what kind of binds all these things together for me is that they're all about connection and flow. So the closest thing I have to a purpose statement is like um, co-creating connection and flow with purpose-driven entrepreneurs and uh, social innovators. Um, but I'm, you know, I, I'm kind of looking for, I'm, I, because I'm kind of between projects, you know, I have, don't have a big project right now. So I'm, I'm kind of going to have to adapt that purpose statement to the next project, I'm guessing. But it's surely going to be very similar to that. It's not going to be that different. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. 
Do you do you consider yourself a purpose-driven entrepreneur and social innovator? Definitely a purpose-driven entrepreneur and social innovator in certain aspects of my life, yes. Um, so especially the Women's Empowerment Initiative and even the communication coaching company that I had in Qatar were quite innovative in many ways. So Qatar was, um, yeah, first of all, like when I started coaching, I had to actually educate the market about what coaching was, you know, like most people there didn't know the difference between coaching and training. And then with the Women's Empowerment Initiative, we really did some things that were not not very common, you know, uh, like we usually ha had about 50 different nationalities in the room, which was always exciting, you know, <laughs> and so <laughs> obviously people have prejudice, you know, when they come in, you'd have like all the Arabic women sitting in one place, all the Western women sitting in another place, all the Asian women sitting together, right. you know, so they'd sort of group themselves, you know, into these some major groups, you know, and I would get up on stage and I'd be like, okay, we have a rule here. No more than two blonde heads or two headscarves at any table. You know, everyone get up and mix. <laughs> so, you know, they would all have to like sit with strangers. And that was really do a lot to A, um, break down the barriers between the different nationalities. So one of the most common feedbacks we got was, oh, we didn't realize that they were a lot more like us than we thought. And the they and the us could be anyone, you know, so it was really right. interchangeable. It came from all directions, you know. And um, and the other thing that it helped a lot with was it made networking easier because people would meet strangers in, a, in an exercise, you know. And then once you've met someone, it's so much easier to walk up to them in the coffee break, you know. Walking up to a complete stranger is like a bit awkward and most people don't like doing it. But once you've had a chat with someone across the table, you know, then it's so much easier to go and say, hey, wasn't that great what we just talked about? And then, you know, continue the conversation quite naturally. Right. That's cool. Yeah. So it seems like a lot of your purpose is captured in breaking down these barriers that kind of artificially exist between people and getting cultures to be more intentional and more um, yeah, creative in nature and connect people across things that they didn't know they could connect with. Yeah, connection is really important for me. So yeah, connection is something I really emphasize in my work. Cool. When when was uh, studying and, and understanding and creating culture? When when did that become interesting to you, or when was that a you know first a focus in your life? Well, <laughs> um, you know, I was uh, born into a, a bilingual family. So my dad's German and my mom's British. So I had an awareness of culture from a very young age. And, uh, you know, I also had a, an awareness of not really belonging to either culture, because it was kind of everyone thought I'm strange, you know, I'm different from them. So um, and so that that kind of got me to start observing more about what cultures are like and what premises people have and what makes them think of cult you know is is part of their culture and stuff and uh, then when I started traveling I realized how very different other cultures are to our own you know that how huge the differences can be when you go for example from Europe to Asia you know you have this huge difference in what people perceive to be normal and acceptable you know, um, so that was really interesting. And, and then going to, to the, you know, intercultural communication, and finally, 
realizing that companies even have cultures, that everyone, everything has a culture, you know, a family has a culture, a village has a culture, a school has a culture. And, um, and I think in American schools, that's even more um, obvious, you know, American universities have very much like very, very um, strong cultures, you know, yeah. my, my daughter studied in the US, and I really noticed how much there is an emphasis on culture, you know, and in a similar way, companies have cultures. But what I find so cool about company cultures is that you can influence the culture, you know, you can create the culture. So you're not just exposed to it. You're not just having to go along with it. You can actually create the culture that you want, which is great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, that's something about entrepreneurship that was one of, I, I think, the first things that really excited me um, beyond just the normal, like, financial freedom, work from anywhere type of thing is like, you get a chance to create an organization um, how you want it to feel and how you want how you want to be, how do you want to participate within it and I I think that it, that's beautiful as well um, yeah you have it you have this ability because it seems like you because you were like coming from a mixed culture growing up and then you also went and you did these like travels to all these different cultures as well so I, I would imagine you have a n unique ability to find these beautiful combinations of culture and then create a, a brand new one um, in its place uh, in a more intentional way. And yeah, I, I think that's super cool. Yeah, I, I think, you know, what you become aware of after a while is that um, it's not so much about learning what the culture is, you know, like people used to in the old days, I remember, uh, people used to try and understand a culture and then say, if you go and speak to a Japanese person, you have to do X, Y, Z. And then if you go and speak to, I don't know, uh, a Spanish person, you have to do X, Y, Z, you know. Um, but that's, first of all, not true anymore because people now don't have just one culture. You know, most people are mixed in so many ways, even if they grew up in one country with both parents from that country, but still because of television, because of studies, because of internet you know all these things like we we're not like purely one culture anymore you know and most of us have traveled most of us have maybe a spouse from another culture or whatever you know so cultures have got much more mixed up and so it's much more important i think now to realize that there are certain tacit agreements in cultures you know there are tacit agreements about uh, whether for example the listener has to check understanding or the speaker has to check understanding no, things like that, they are tacitly agreed in cultures. And if you're not aware of the tacit agreement that the person opposite you has in their culture, then you might like just assume that if they don't understand, they'll check. But they might uh, assume that you will make sure that they understand, for example, you know. And so you might never come to an understanding and you might never realize. And these are things that to me are really exciting, you know, to find out like what are these patterns and then to like transfer that into the co company setting and say, okay, if these are patterns that exist, how can we avoid these kind of things happening in a company, you know, so that we make sure that people actually have an understanding and check their understanding. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. I mean, I totally feel that. I, I both was a major in media and cultural studies. That was my bachelor degree. And then I moved to Thailand and was an English teacher for a, a village of Thai students. And we were constantly getting trained on how to um, 
understand the culture and immerse yourself within it in a way that's like mindful of it, but also realize that, you know, like you said, they're influenced by so many different things and they have different like viewpoints on what, who I am to them. Um, and then even within the school setting, like I've taught both in Thailand and in San Francisco, and it's so different about how you check for understanding. Um, in, in Thailand, people don't want to be called out so much. There, there's like this whole saving face type of thing more so where they're not wanting to be loud. In, in San Francisco, you have seven kids wanting to answer the thing. And <laughs> if you didn't call on one, you were being rude to them or whatever. And it's such a different feeling. Culture is beautiful. Yeah. What what do you consider to be your culture? How do you label your, the culture you live in? Or does it always shift with your environment? It shifts a lot with my environment. I'm very adaptable. So um, I really feel that, you know, it's important to, of course, it's important to be authentic always, you know, to be true to yourself. And it's also really important to find that par part of your authentic self that really fits in to the culture that you're currently interacting with, you know. Um, so yeah, definitely in the Middle East, you know, my behavior was quite different to here in Malta, where it's more sort of, especially here on this little island, it's very sort of hippie, um, love life, kind of free spirit kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. um, and in the Middle East, of course, it's, it's much more, you know, everything is very proper and there are rules about things and you have to behave and, you know, it's like, there is, it's quite different. So, um, there are more, I would say restrictions, um, in the way that you move in public spaces, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so it seemed like you first went away to go discover other cultures when you took this gap here after high school. You, in your bio, you said that you just started traveling because you didn't know what you wanted to do with your life. And then you met a woman who was studying this foreign culture of a career as well, I guess you could call it, um, in dance therapy. And I think you said, I had no idea what it entailed, but I was 100% sure it was right for me. Yeah. I am so curious about how a lot of people want to kind of have this mindset, this free spirit feeling, but you did it. Like what was going on at that point of your life that you felt like let's dive into this culture that is, you know, of a career that's very different than what I'm used to. And I'm going to go off on my own and, and travel at like 18, 19 years old. Tell us more about, about that mindset. Well, um, I, to be fair, I had started traveling on my own at 16. So I was already a bit used to traveling on my own, but I'd gone for like a week or two weeks here and there, you know, I hadn't gone for such an extensive trip before. Um, but yeah, I mean, travel was very much encouraged in my family. So it wasn't really a big thing, you know, um, but I, I originally wanted to go around the whole world, but then I got stuck in Australia because it was so fascinating <laughs> and I made so many friends and I discovered so many things that I never moved past Australia until I ran out of money and I had to go back home. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a, it was a really, really good, I, I don't know. I was interested in so many things. My problem was not that I, I couldn't decide because I didn't have any interests. My problem was I couldn't decide because I had so many interests and I couldn't like, you know, narrow it down to one thing to study. And so I was a bit frustrated with that. I was like, oh, what should I do? You know, and then like I thought, oh, I'll just go 
And if I go travel, the, I, I will find out, you know, because really you find out a lot about yourself when you travel. I recommend that to everyone. I actually, my, my daughter, I, I almost kicked her out at 17 and, and made her travel. You know, because I was like, you have to have this experience of traveling on your own. It's like the best thing ever, you know, it really teaches you a lot. Um, in terms of resilience, in terms of just learning how to improvise and how to work around obstacles and, you know, all kinds of things. It's like really, really good life lessons that you learn when you travel on your own. And yeah, that's, I don't know, I've always had quite a strong connection, I guess, to my gut feeling. And when this woman told me about this job, when she said I'm studying dance therapy, it was just like, boom, it was like 100% certain this is what I'm going to do. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, what is it exactly? How does it work? You know? <laughs> was, it, was it your sense of purpose? Or how, what, what was it that made you dive in and say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust this woman to guide my next career steps. Yeah. What? It just sounded like the perfect thing for me. It was just like a vocation, you know, because I always loved dancing. My mom always joked that I started dancing before I could walk, that I would like hold on to things as a little baby. I would hold myself up and then just wiggle my my um, pampered bum around, you know, <laughs> to the music. So apparently I was always dancing, even when I was a baby. And um you know, so that that already that it was about dance was really important, you know. And I had actually as a teenager at some point, my dance teacher had asked me whether I want to be a professional dancer. And I had thought about it and at the time made the decision against it um, because I just thought I can't do both. You know, I can't be a dancer and do my A-levels. That would have been too much for me. So I said, I have to go and do my A-levels. You know, I have to graduate high school because it doesn't make sense to not graduate high school and just rely on dance, you know. So I had made the sensible decision at that point. And it was always a little bit of a nickel, you know, that I had made the sensible decision. And every time I watch a dance performance, to this day, every time I watch a dance performance, I start crying, you know. So it's still like something that niggles at me. But that that it enabled me to do something with dance was like a one big part of it, you know? And then the therapy part just made it much more sustainable, you know? So that, you know, as a dancer, your career often ends at maybe 25 or 28, you know? A lot of dancers can't, can't continue working after quite a young age, you know? If you're not good enough to be a choreography choreographer or whatever, you end up teaching dance classes to kids or something, you know? And I really wanted more for my life. I wanted to have like a bigger purpose than that, you know. And so that just didn't really appeal to me. And doing dance therapy just felt like, okay, you can do so much more because you have that therapy part, you know, where you can also help someone. Beautiful, beautiful. What is dance therapy and how does it work? <laughs> well, there's a lot of different schools of dance therapy, but I'll limit it to what our school of dance therapy says, okay? Um, because it's it's quite there's quite a variety out there. But in our school of dance therapy, um, we don't use um, actual choreography very much. It's mostly expressive dance, so it's mostly like expressing yourself through movement. And this is mainly used as a key to getting to your subconscious because your subconscious mind holds 
a lot of really, really important information, you know, and, and we tell ourselves certain stories about things that happened in the past. We have certain memories, we have stored memories in a certain way. And with words, we can't get past those stories a lot of the time. But when we move, when we go from our body, then our cell memory might have a different story, might have a different memory that we can get access to through movement, you know? And it's really interesting that now, finally, science, sort of mainstream science is catching up to these things, you know? And now they're like talking about like the, the importance of, of the, um, the nerve cells in the gut and, you know, all these things that we basically have like a second brain in our gut, you know, and all these things are now sort of being confirmed by science um, but it's things that we've been working with for a really really long time you know and and dance therapy where we've been working with these things for a long time already beautiful yeah i 100% agree with that like dancing is so liberating and it exposes you to a deeper part of yourself that lives much beyond just like the brain level or intellectual understanding rational understanding of life it's really cool so after dance therapy, like got started and you got, um, you know, you were going in it. Um, how did you start to shift into business from there? I'm still, I don't see the, the connection. What, what was the connection? Was it around purpose? Like what, what, what connected the two? Well, actually it was, I kind of slipped into it at first. Um, so um, while I was studying, I, I already had my daughter at the time when I was studying dance therapy and I had to finance our life somehow, you know. So I was working at a language school teaching English. And then um, because obviously that I already knew English, so that was an easy thing to do. <laughs> and uh, and then I became the manager of the language school after a while. And so I really got to understand business. I mean, it was a small business, you know, we had maybe seven employees or something, but it was still a business, you know? And so I I learned all these different aspects of running a business and it became really fascinating. And at the same time, my key account clients, you know, that, that I was teaching, they were like doctors, lawyers, architects, you know, very educated people who in Germany really speak very good English usually you know, they don't need vocabulary, they don't need grammar, but they came because they wanted to be more fluent. They wanted to speak more like native speakers. That's what they usually said, you know. And so I realized that this was more a psychological thing than a language skills problem, you know. Mm. Um, and so I started applying a lot of the things that I, I was learning in my dance therapy studies. I started applying them in the English teaching classroom and to help people be more confident and to loosen up a bit, you know, and, and to not think so much and just flow. And, and that's when I realized, you know, I, I was developing this. And after a while, I was talking to someone about it. And they said, well, there's a name for that. This is called coaching, you know. I'm like, oh, really? There's a name for it? This, this exists already, you know? I'm like, this is cool, you know? Because at the time, you know, coaching wasn't really a thing in Germany. I hadn't ever heard of it before. And so it was really cool to find out that other people had already invested in this and, and developed this further, you know? So I could like go out and find out about what other people had already done and be inspired by that and develop it further, you know? Yeah, definitely. So what, so you were, you were coaching by accident, like meaning you were kind of doing your sense of 
co-creating a new culture of connection and flow within your classroom and getting people to move and awaken to their like inner voice or what what was it that you were able to do yeah so one example for example they i like the um the the other teachers would give me the difficult students you know the ones where they didn't know what to do with them so one that st- has stuck in my mind until today was one student who he had this immense resistance to learning English, but his employer said he had to learn English. There was no other way. If he didn't learn English, he couldn't continue working there. And so they sent him to me because nobody could get through to him. And I listened to his story. And his story was that he remembers being a shaman in a past life. And he was a Native American shaman. And the English was the language of the oppressors. And he had this major resistance to learning this language because it was the language of the oppressors, you know? Wow. And so he had this really, you know, he had this really intense kind of session. And of course, you know, you can't just talk this out of the way, this kind of thing, you know? It's like really, really strong emotional resistance that he brought in, you know? And so we we just worked around it with this methodology that I had learned, you know, from dance therapy. Like I helped him really feel into this and, you know, sort of resolve that this is not the case anymore. And now it's not about oppressing, you know, and, you know, nobody's trying to take anything away from him at this moment by teaching him English. And and we worked through it, you know, from through in that way. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. And then you, so you moved from this kind of environment to pioneering a dance therapy institute. Is that what kind of came next or how did this well, evolve into the next, next form? Well, the, the institute was already there. So it was the institute where I had studied um, and I went there to work afterwards as a, as an instructor. And then we, as the, I, I became a member of the board of examiners and we decided that we were going to start coaching coach training for other people because as I said coaching wasn't really a thing at the time in Germany so there weren't a lot of trainings available for coaches and definitely not one that included movement you know and and expression And so, yeah, we started researching international standards and, you know, what other, what guidelines other trainings had and, you know, what, what kind of things we needed to include. And then we built a one year program to um, help people to become coaches. Beautiful, beautiful. So you, you've kind of always been a coach ever since you first accidentally kind of came into it. People labeled you as a coach you realized that this is coaching. And then once you were kind of conscious of that, you said, Hey, I'm going to teach other people to be coaches. Is that kind yeah. of the process you went through? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I just felt that it was a really valuable thing to do. You know, I felt it was much more um, sort of practical and real than therapy. You know, I, I don't get me wrong. Therapy is very valuable. But first of all, there are very big barriers for a lot of people to engage in therapy. You know, a lot of people still to this day, even in 2020, think you have to be, there has to be something wrong with you in order to do therapy, you know? So there's still a lot of barriers, you know, a big sort of threshold to therapy. And the other thing is that with therapy, it's almost always a more longer term process because you have to go back and, you know, uncover the root of things and work through the root and whatever. 
Whereas coaching is very immediate and action oriented and solution oriented, you know, so coaching stays in the present and just does stuff, you know, and you make progress immediately. Like I do in my discovery calls with my clients, I do like a 20 minute sample session just so they understand what, what my coaching is like, you know, and in 20 minutes they make progress. Also, it's great to be able to say, okay, we can just do 20 minutes and you will see a difference from just 20 minutes of working together, you know. What is it you do as a coach that you think makes you stand out in those 20 minutes? Well, I think a lot of it now at this stage in my life is that I've just got so much experience, you know, so I've been doing this for 20 years now, you know, so um so in 20 years, you just accumulate a lot of, of stuff, you know, um, and just checking in with people. I'm, I'm uh, you know, I have a high sensitivity for how other people are feeling. So checking in with how the other person is feeling, what's going on for them um, and understanding what approach to use with people. So I use a different approach with every client I have because it's very much, you know, adapted to the client's mm -hmm. needs right and do you find that your clients are kind of fitting your purpose statement they're they're purpose-driven entrepreneurs and or social innovators or do you also work with other types of people well i always i i would you know consider working with anyone who's coachable i mean first of all there are people who are not coachable and so it doesn't make sense to work with them you know if they're if they're for example being sort of forced by their employer to um, take coaching, it doesn't really make sense. If they don't want to be there, right. they're not going to make progress. You know, I can't like, I can't manipulate them into making progress. You know, they right, have to right. want to make progress. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so, you know, that's one thing that's really important, but also it's sort of, I need to have sort of shared values in certain aspects. You know, if someone was doing a job like that is completely destroying the um, environment or that is really like doing bad stuff for people's health or whatever, I wouldn't be comfortable working with them. You know, I wouldn't want to help them be more successful at doing that. Yeah, of course. That makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> cool. Man, I bet your daughter received a lot of uh, these special benefits of having a mom who was a, a coach as she was being raised. You'd have to ask her that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about how you were developing at this time. Like, I, It seems like this was still before kind of the peak thing about the women's empowerment initiative that I do want to talk about. But during all this phase of your development, what what was going on in your heart in, in your like inside for you and were you becoming more aware of this sense of purpose you have today or was it still like a, a very like airy fairy type of concept to you that there's some big grand purpose for your life were you just kind of uh, vagabonding through careers or did you feel like this is me this is my life this is my purpose this is my destiny how are you feeling at this point I'm I mean, I guess I was always very fortunate in that um, I always had choice, you know, or I always felt I had choice, which I think is the important thing because, 
you know, I got pregnant when I was 21 and I had only graduated from high school. I had no other professional qualification whatsoever. So, you know, I could have maybe just thrown my hands up and said, okay, that's it. I'm going to be a cashier at the local supermarket for the rest of my life because that's just my lot in life. You know, I could have just like resigned myself to that. Um, But luckily, uh, I always felt that I had a choice. You know, I always felt that I could do different things and I always found a way to do it, um, even though I didn't have a lot of money, for example. But, you know, I found a way that the Dance Therapy Institute let me pay in installments over time. And so I could, like, earn enough money to pay off these installments while still earning money to pay for our lives, you know, and all of that. And so, yeah, it's just a, you know, um, I guess it's a mindset thing, a lot of it. It's the mindset of, of not not being willing to just uh, resign yourself to something but just say no there has to be a way there always has to be a way you know and and I think that's what's led me to always believing that I could do something meaningful with my life and what you know everything I've done in my life pretty much I've very few exceptions you know sometimes I had to take a job for a couple of months or something because I just was desperate for you know, some income, but it's very rare. Like I would say 1990 to 95% of what I've done in my life work-wise has been meaningful to me. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Wow. Yeah. I, how much of that was your parents encouraging you to get out there and travel and have this, they have this mixed culture. And so you got kind of all these insights at a really young age. How much of it was that versus you having to intentionally kind of grasp for for that purpose-driven lifestyle? Um, I think there was a lot, of course, that I got from my parents. I mean, um, I, I grew up in a fairly, you know, good middle-class kind of family. So we never wanted for anything and we could afford to travel. And my mom loved to travel. So my mom was always pushing for us to go places, you know, and we, so we went to a lot of places even when I was young. Um, and and also my mom's attitude, I, I think it really helped me, you know, like one of her favorite sayings always was, um, it'll all work out in the end. It always does. You know, and like this attitude has just always been with me, you know, that it'll all work out. It, it always does, you know, and it's always been with me, this attitude. It's like, of course it will. Um, and also when I, you know, for example, when I decided to go to, to travel, um, I mean, this was before internet and mobile phones, you have to, to remember, you know, and my mom was just like, okay, you just have to call me once a month to check in so I know that you're still alive (laughs) like that was it you know I just had to call home once a month and then you know that was fine I was just doing whatever I wanted for the whole time you know so now when I think back to that when my daughter was that age you know and I thought wow you know I really admire my mom for being so cool about this you know (laughs) (laughs) and I remember one time especially I called her and I was like, oh, I just bailed a friend out of jail. And she's like, that is so cool that you're getting some real life experience there. <laughs> and I was like, how lucky am I? You know, like how many mothers would react like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And how about you as a mom? How has being a mom kind of captured your sense of, 
a bigger meaning and purpose to your life? Oh, I mean, it definitely gave my life a whole different level of purpose, you know? So um, I think like there's nothing more uh, for me personally, there's nothing more important I can do than be a good mom, you know? So it's like a really, really important part of my life. And um, even though I've always, you know, done other things and maintained other parts of my life as well, it's always been like really, really central to my life, you know, to to provide for my daughter. I mean, now she's like 22, she's going to be 23 soon. So she's got her own life, you know, but um, she doesn't need me that much anymore. But, you know, over time that changes, of course. But yeah, it's definitely, definitely given me a whole new sense of purpose yeah yeah and you've been raising her without without a partner for the most part is that is that kind of what i was reading about in there it was yeah it was early was mostly, on in your life yes i was mostly a single mom Um, her dad was kind of there um but he was more of a sort of weekend dad you know so he would see her on the weekends and then later when we moved country he would see her in the holidays um and so it was mainly me uh, raising her. Yeah. Wow. So how ne the next big career thing you moved into is building this women's empowerment initiative in Qatar. Yeah. How does that connect from your dance therapy institute and your language school? Like what, what went into that decision to go dive into that and, and tell us like uh, about kind of the How Women Work conference and all those kind of accomplishments you, you had around your sense of purpose there? Okay. Well, really, it, it kind of, as a lot of great things, I think it, it kind of just came out of necessity. It grew out of necessity because when we moved to Qatar, I, um, I kind of wanted to connect to other women who also had ambitions and aspirations. And most of the women around me were kind of uh, we call them ladies who lunch, you know? <laughs> so there's like all these women in Qatar who are like trailing spouses. And most of what they do is they just go out to lunch and go out to coffee and, you know, pick their kids up from school and take them to their activities. And then, um, you know, uh, go to maybe some fancy um, um, charity event or something, you know, and and that just wasn't my lifestyle or my aspiration at all, you know. Even if I'd been in a position to do that, I wouldn't have chosen it because um, it's just not, you know. I just want to do something with my life, you know. And so, so I was very, I, I was getting a bit desperate to meet other women who also wanted to do something with their lives. And I thought there must be other women here who, who are like me, you know, <laughs> I can't be the only one. And uh, after a few months, like one by one, I started meeting some individual women who were more ambitious in what they wanted to do. And at some point I realized that now I, I, I knew quite a few of them and I thought, wouldn't it be great to have them all in one room? And so I started this little initiative called These Ladies Mean Business. And uh, we were just meeting in the comp, you know, in the like clubhouse of my compound. And uh, we would just get together and tell each other about our business ideas and give each other feedback on presentations or, you know, all kinds of things to just support each other. And it was so fascinating because we came from such different backgrounds. You know, we really, really came from very different backgrounds, different age groups, different ethnicities. Everything was different about us. 
but we could really, really identify with each other. You know, we could really understand each other's stories and feel each other. And we were finding this so helpful to get together and exchange about these things. And so soon I kind of thought it, it would be amazing to make this available to more women. You know, there must be more women out there who want this kind of thing. And so I started like researching and finding out how that could be done. And my first idea was to have a conference. And one of the other women from this group, she was like, well, if we're going to do it, we'll do it properly and we'll do a conference for 500 people. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you know, I'm not sure about this. But we kind of, you know, we kind of plowed on and we got to know all kinds of people and we just, you know, made connections and, and just found out what it would take to do a conference like that. And in the end, the first conference was only for like, I think there were 115 people or something around that. But, you know, it was quite a sizable event for the first ever event like this that I'd done. Um, and we had like breakout sessions and different workshops and things happening. You know, we had, it was really like really, really great. And people enjoyed it so much. And like people were literally like queuing to thank me at the end of it. You know, they were wow, like, we needed beautiful. something like this. It was so <laughs> important, you know, like, thank you for providing this and please do it again next year. And, and so I kind of felt like, okay, we, we have to keep going, you know, I have to keep doing this. And so, uh, and after a while, you know, people said, well, once a year is not enough, you know, we need more. Can we have more events? So we started doing other events, you know, throughout the year. Uh, until we got to the point where like at the peak of how women work we did 30 events a year we had wow. like, anything from just workshops and mastermind sessions to smaller conferences and the big conference once a year that was just by that time 300 participants over two days you know with like 50 to 60 speakers um just offering loads and loads of different breakout sessions and one-on-one -on -one offers and all kinds of things that kept it really, really interactive and engaging for the people. Mm -hmm. Wow. What is it about um, throwing events like that, that you, that you learned works so well and what doesn't? Because I'm just curious, because I, I also want to do stuff like this and it feels big and impossible and expensive and, like bureaucratic how did you how did you figure it out like what what goes into it that that people kind of over un, underlook and then what do you think people are telling themselves too many barriers around that are actually not as challenging as they could be well i think that for me i think the fact that i was a bit naive around what it would take was very helpful because i was like how difficult can it be you know to organize a one day event come on you know i'll do it and then, like, I realized afterwards, I kind of looked back and calculated all the hours that everyone who had helped, you know, I had lots of volunteers who helped me. Um, I calculated all the hours and realized that about 1,500 hours had gone into organizing that first day, you know, that first conference. And uh. I was like, wow, you know, this is crazy stuff, you know. Um, but obviously it was because it was our first one and there were so many things that I, you know, had to be found out. And later on, it became easier and quicker to organize these events because you get, you know, you have a routine with things and you have uh, contacts, you have a network. So it's easier to find venues and things like that, you know, and all these things to become easier over time. 
But I think what what scares people is just the sheer complexity and and size of the whole thing. And like with everything, I think you just have to take it step by step. You know, you just have to go like, okay, what do we need first? You know, and and so one actually one woman she was really good. She helped me to understand how to best organize this. And she just sat me down with a big calendar and she was like, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to say, this is the day of the conference. In order for the conference to happen on this day, when do we have to sell the tickets? So we went back, we have to sell the tickets by this day. Okay. So in order to sell the tickets by this day, when do we have to put them in on the market? Do we have to put them on the market on this day? So when do we have to get them printed? And like that, you know, we went back from the day of the conference for everything. We just went back and just realized when things had to be done. And then you realize that you really have to start, like if you have a big, big event, like our annual conference, you really have to start with some aspects of it six months before the conference. And because you have to like reserve a venue, for example. And like in Qatar, for example, there were maybe four or five venues that could cater to our needs. So there wasn't, you know, you really had to like get a venue well in advance to make sure that it would be free on those two days that you wanted it, you know. So like all it like if you just break it down, you realize like, you know, what all the steps are, and then you can start. And the other thing that I realized is that I'm not I'm not the kind of person who can do hand holding, you know, like I have no patience for that. So when I work with volunteers, there has to be someone between me and the volunteers. There has to be another person who communicates with me and then communicates with the volunteers. Because I'm not that person, you know, who can call someone three, four times and ask them about the same thing and be really patient about it. I'm like, no, I've given you a job. It's your job to just do it. That's it. (laughs) This is how I work. (laughs) And people don't work like that. And you can't make them work like that. You know, you can't change the way that people are. So you need someone who's a buffer, you know. (laughs) Yeah, that's like your, your assistant or your manager or something like that. Yeah, so I I usually had someone who had like a project management background, you know, and who knew how to do project management, but who was also very good with sort of hand-holding and, you know, being very gentle with people and things like that. And and that worked really well. Beautiful. Thank you for listening to part one of this interview with Caroline Zettler on co-creating cultures of connection and flow with purpose-driven entrepreneurs and social innovators. Be sure to listen to next week's episode as we wrap up our conversation with Caroline, talking about what it is about organizing events and conferences that she feels so much connection and flow with, purpose-driven individuals, how she changed through the different periods of her life, the direction she is heading now, and what her next big thing will be. Also, what it is about coaching and culture that captures her sense of purpose and stamps her mini legacy. And last but not least, her wise words on communication.